1: God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadow lark. So God made a farmer. <laughs>
0: Hello
2: and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. I'm your host, Harold Thornbrough, and glad you're joining me again today for this episode. Today we're going to dive into the topic of uh, weeds in the garden. Uh, I have guest John Moody on today, and if you're spending much time in your garden, you might be finding that it's uh, yeah, weeds are a challenge, and it's, uh, it's something that can eat up a lot of your time. It can, it can actually make gardening kind of miserable if, uh, if you don't know how to manage those weeds properly so John's going to share with us a few tricks. He's actually got a book on the topic. So we're going to dive into some of the things that, um, uh, he has learned over the years of gardening and that he shares in his book. And, uh, it's kind of a long podcast today, so we're just going to jump right into it. I'm, I'm not going to prolong it and talk about my homestead stuff. We're just going to jump right into it because he and I, we're friends. We talk about all kinds of things in the podcast. So uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, other discussions other than just weeds. So uh, we'll cover a lot of the, the things around our own personal homesteads in the podcast. So with that, let's just jump right into this episode with John Moody. Joined today on the podcast by uh, John Moody. Now, John's been on a couple other times talking about his book, and we've talked about some, uh, see, we talked about elderberry. I think we talked about frugal homesteading once. Uh, so John's no stranger to the podcast. But, uh, well, with that, uh, John, welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. Hey, it's great to be back. Well, I I always enjoy talking to you. We we talk uh, other than this podcast every once in a while online and stuff, so it's always uh, we have a lot of things in common, so it's always uh, it's like talking to a friend for sure when I when I have you on the podcast.
1: Yeah, great to hear from you again. It's been great to see what you got going on this year on your homestead.
2: Yeah, it's an adjusting year for me. We're moving a lot of things around and changing some stuff. Cause we, you know, when we got the new property, we're kind of moving a lot of things around, trying to blend it all together and make it a little bit more, uh, like one big property instead of two separate properties. So we've been working on that a lot. So it's kind of, it's kind of cut my garden back this year because of the transition. But, you, you know, I figure we're going to have one or two years of that, and then it's just going to really flourish. So that's what we're hoping for. But but for those, uh, for the folks who haven't uh, maybe heard you on before, can you give us, like, the the quick elevator uh, pitch of uh, just kind of who you are and what you do?
1: Oh, man. So, uh, <laughs> Is I'm there like such a the thing? World, <laughs> I'm the world's least likely homesteader. So I, I, I grew up in the, the lower west side of Youngstown, Ohio, city kid, video game playing Junk food, eating cartoon watching. So did a little bit of hunting and other stuff because my dad forced me to as a kid. Um, but, but you know, we, we ended up out on, out on land, um, I guess about a decade ago now, though I started doing crazy things like worm composting and, um, growing food, even when we lived in an apartment up in Louisville, Kentucky. So drove my landlord and some of my neighbors, absolutely crazy. <laughs> um, cause I, I was the crazy guy, you know, like it'd be like 10 at night and I'd wait till all my neighbors were no longer going down to do laundry and I'd sneak down to feed my hidden worm bins. And you know. <laughs> so, you know, neighbors be like, what, what, what? you know, like, like what's going on down here in the basement of the apartment? No. <laughs> so, That's yeah. So, um, we've been, you know, homesteading and farming for about a decade. Um, and through that, I, um, you know, to had so much interest in some of the ways we were doing things. Um, and I'd gotten an opportunity to speak at a couple of conferences years ago. I started out speaking more on health and nutrition and traditional foods and stuff and slowly have kind of transitioned to speaking more about, um, you know, farming and raising food and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm.
2: How many books have you written now?
1: Four or five? How- I guess technically six. If, if, oh. if, you know, especially like in farming and homesteading yeah. type stuff. Yeah. So, cause what? We'll- when I was in college, I wrote a couple math books, but the, those aren't generally something most people are looking yeah, for. Probably, yeah,
2: I, I don't know if this audience is going to run out and want to get those real real quick, but,
1: but uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> I know, I've seen several uh, that you've written. See, you've written, see, I know you got the Frugal Homesteading book. You've written the one on elderberry. Uh, one that we're going to talk about, I think mainly today, is the Weeds, uh, War on Weeds. You've written one on sourdough bread. You and your wife put that out, I think.
1: Yeah, so I volunteered her for that. Um, <laughs> That's nice of you. <laughs> because, you know, because like you know, any time I'd post you know on social media sourdough stuff, my wife was making. You know, all these people are like, "Oh, I want to do sourdough," or "Oh, I tried sourdough and this went wrong and that went wrong." Or oh, yeah. the thing we heard most often from a lot of people was um they they just never figured out how to like manage their sourdough. Mm-hmm in in the midst of real life, so you know, and and my wife is just amazing because we have five kids, um, and you know, we homeschool, um, we travel some, so our schedule is pretty crazy. It, it, it's you know, it's not like we we have a simple life to try and do sourdough around, and she just made a really great system for managing and doing sourdough. Mm -hmm. that basically anyone can use, um, and that just, you know, allows us to consistently make sourdough stuff with no fuss or drama.
2: Um, Keep keeping starter going all the time. Just always have some just growing and and ready to go. huh?
1: Yeah. Well, and you know what she did, which I guess, you know, not a lot of other people do because it seems from, you know, when she started teaching, um, but like a lot of people with their starter, um, they're like constantly having to discard starter, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so they're constantly throwing away starter. And what my wife does with the schedule she made for doing sourdough is um, you're always feeding the sourdough to the, to the amount you need for the next time you're cooking. Um, So you get rid of all this waste and kind of all this complication at the same time. Um, And we get yummy sourdough. My poor wife never does because she's been, she's been <laughs> gluten, she's been gr- gluten free I think for like fourteen years. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, so she puts in all the yeah, work but, and
2: gets none of the joy. That ain't
1: really her, but that's all right, I
2: guess. <laughs> you,
1: you know, and, and that's what I said about you know they wanted to put my name on the title of the book with her, and I was like, all I did is like type what she told me to type for the most part. <laughs> you know, and, uh,
2: and, uh, and, and taste the bread for, her, make sure it was good. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. I, I did a lot of case testing for that book. <laughs> oh, well.
2: Did you gain some weight? I wonder.
1: <laughs> uh, no, not during the book. So the, the, gaining, weight, g- gaining weight is definitely the goal for this year. <laughs> but not from you know, it's at least for me, you know, carbs don't really. Um, cause me to gain weight like they do for some people.
2: Yeah. Uh, so. It does me. Yeah, for sure. I have to really watch the carbs because it'll, it'll pile on me. It used to not be that way. And then that metabolism turned around. And then you just like, you really got to watch it,
1: you know? No. I drive a <laughs> yeah, truck yeah, for a get... living,
2: too. So I sit a lot, you know. So you're not after burning those calories off. You've got to be careful what you're putting in.
1: Yeah. See, I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate that, you know, writing means I have a certain amount of sitting. Mm uh-huh. hmm. Um, but I've never had a true, like desk job. So, or a sit job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where you just keep so up and a,
2: get what you want to do. Yeah.
1: You might find this interesting though, but my dad was a truck driver for, I don't know, 20 some years. Hmm. So, so I'm, I'm, I know, a Fair bit about the life of a truck driver because it was the life my dad had for a really really long time.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's long hours. I mean, it's not a hard job except for it's just long hours. It's what makes it hard. It's you know, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of the pressures of the road, of course, you know, the stress of that. But you know, as far as the physical labor part, it's not real real physical job, but it, it can it can stress you out and it, it's a lot of hours. You know, you most people are working forty hours a week. You know, and truck drivers the standard hours are you know seventy hours a week. So. Man. Yeah. It can, so, it can how has that
1: impacted you homesteading? Has it made it a bit more difficult with that particular job?
2: Well, I've had to definitely um, manage my time better. Uh, now, I'm home on the weekend, so I, you know, I can definitely do the bigger jobs on the weekend. I've done podcasts about it before, you know. And I generally, you know, maybe half hour to an hour a night, you know, doing the homesteading chores and whatnot. Uh, so it's not real bad, and then I just really make up for it on the weekend. So my weekends are like really, really busy, you know, trying to get everything <laughs> caught up and done. Yeah, I
1: can just imagine. So we're, we're going to be gone for like 10 or 11 days this fall. And I'm just like, oh, I'm like <laughs> trying to figure out how that's going to work. <laughs>
2: yeah, there, there's definitely challenges to it. But, uh, I yeah, I still find plenty of time to do, you know, plenty of family things. And, and you know, I watch a fair amount of TV and things like that, too. So, I mean, it isn't like I just – all I do is work all the time. I mean, it, it – I don't know. And somehow you, you work it out and you find that extra time. I don't know. It just, it, I don't really run like a schedule. I don't have like a, you know, all my time labeled out for this and that. I, I just kind of let it go as it goes. And I just got a routine that I've been doing. I've been driving a truck, I think for 25 years now, 26, something like that. So <laughs> I've gotten used to it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So, oh. well, I want to talk about with you today, the weeds thing. You know, I mean, you wrote this book a while back. Several months ago, you put this book out, didn't you? I mean, it was back like last summer, maybe, or back last winter? I don't know. It was a few months ago, yeah. wasn't it? It,
1: it? was. it was the end of last summer because it mm-hmm. came out about the same time that the Elderberry book came out because okay. yeah. I, I did the two projects um, kind of at the same time so I could – take a break when one was driving me
2: nuts <laughs> yeah yeah i know the in the elderberry i'm sure it was a great success uh, book a great book and you know just a great topic a lot of people are really you know really interested in that we've done a whole podcast on that and I, it was definitely one of the more downloaded podcasts that i had so a lot of people were very interested in, in knowing more about you know growing elderberry and what you could do with it and stuff but i know a lot of people are struggling with weeds you know i mean i just today this morning i got up early this this morning and i was after pulling weeds like crazy out my garden but uh, I think you talk a lot about being more proactive on the weeds uh, before you plant the garden right I mean, you, you really deal with that in a lot of detail don't you
1: yeah you know like uh, so the, the reason I ended up writing that particular book is similar how like I got talking about soil for you know homesteaders and growers is when we purchased our land um, I usually joke that so it's absolutely true that I was uh, the first person to ever buy a farm, Soil not included. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, I borrowed a tiller from a neighbor because that's all I knew at the time. You know, you want to put in a garden, you got to till the soil. Uh, So I borrowed a tiller from my neighbor and the tiller broke before our soil did. Um, It it was just, you know, we we have our our base natural soil is like less than half a percentage um, organic matter. um, And it's on top of solid limestone rock hmm. in some places, just a few inches below the, um, be- below the soil. Yeah. And so, um, it- it's just, you know, the- I was so stubborn the first year or so we were on our property that I grew in cardboard boxes. <laughs> um, so I've these pictures from back in, you know, 2011 or so of me growing in cardboard boxes because I-, I-, I was just so annoyed. But, you know, we spent all this money, and we bought you know thirty five acres, and I can't you know I can't grow anything. It's like moonscape. Yeah, um, I, I laugh so at I, that,
2: but I've seen a guy growing potatoes in corn in, in cardboard boxes in his field because that way he could like fill the dirt up in the boxes per potato plant, and that worked out really well for that guy.
1: <laughs> it does. It's you know it's actually a really you know the way we grow some crops now isn't all that different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ba- basically making, you know, raised, raised swale furrows um, to do a lot of crops in because it's so, so productive and it does just like eliminate certain complications and problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, so like I learned how to build soil first cause I didn't have any soil. Right. Um, and so I, I used to give this talk at the mother earth news fairs called six inches of soil In 16 months Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, where I talk about how you can build six inches of fantastic soil basically in a little over a year um, so that after that then you can grow you know just about whatever you want
0: um,
1: regardless of where you're starting and so we started building all this amazing soil Um, so we just have like all this amazing soil to grow in I think we're up to you know almost maybe 40,000 square feet. Hmm. Um, so, you know, just, just under an acre between annuals and perennials. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem of soil gave way to the problem of weeds.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, cause like some of the stuff that we used to build soil um, contained all sorts of like nasty, unfriendly weed seeds. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so it was, you know, probably like four or five years ago, maybe, yeah, probably about five. Um my kids were a little younger then, but you know, we, we we're basically coming out every day and having to spend like twenty, thirty minutes a day, every single day fighting weeds. Um, just everywhere. Just everywhere there's weeds. Yeah, that that we real fast. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, and obviously like the kids aren't happy about that and and you know, this this is one thing I realized for for a lot of homesteaders you know, like adults will do really, really dumb things that, that kids won't tolerate. <laughs> and so you, you won't even realize how dumb it is unless you have a kid who loves, you know, who, who's around who is like, like, this don't make a lick of sense, dad. <laughs> like, like, you know, so kind of like with soil, um, we, we spent basically, you know, a year or so really kind of like figuring out why do we have weeds and, and how without chemicals and without tillage do you do you you know beat weeds mm-hmm. without resorting you know to nasty chemicals or constantly destroying your soil structure by tilling it up? Um, and and so we cut the amount of time we spent weeding in the course of about a year and a half probably by over ninety percent.
2: Mm, wow! Yeah, that's um, that's a big uh, that saves a lot of time.
1: <laughs> that's a big difference. You, Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, so like we can grow so much now with so little labor, you know, because like this year we we're actually getting ready to move. Um, so we didn't have a single animal in, you know, come January. We had gotten rid of all our animals. Um, we had basically buttoned all the infrastructure on the homestead and farm up to get ready to move. You know, over the last like nine months, my wife got rid of about half of all of our worldly possessions. <laughs> um, you know, so, and then, you know, all this madness that has been this year happened. Um, so it made moving impossible. Yeah. Um, and so it was like end of March, um, the yeah, end of March, early April. So we decided we needed to have a growing season and raise animals this year after all. Um, and so we went from, so when you look at like pictures on my Facebook page, we basically did everything you see in sixty days.
2: <laughs> wow! Yeah, I've seen some. You're, it's coming along really well. It's it's I mean it's very well established garden. You'd never know that it was that that recently you decided to, to, to pursue that again.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the nice thing is like once you get good systems and good infrastructure and good ways of managing things. Um, you know, like with weeds, it's so much less work and so much more productive and just so much more enjoyable. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, but with weeds, you know, weeds are generally an afterthought for most people and, you know, they get them and then they get into trouble and then they're like, ah, <laughs> like, how do I <laughs> fix this? Oh no. Well, so, uh,
2: so, I mean, you, you brought in the soil, and it obviously had a lot of weed seeds in it. So can you give us just a couple of uh, things that you, you that worked for you that you did?
1: Um, so, you know, the, my, there's basically like five or six great tactics mm-hmm. that you can use to radically reduce, you know, the amount of weeding you're going to have in a growing space. Um, and some of them are tactics you use during the growing season. Um, a lot, you know, alongside or like in between your plant rotations.
0: Mm -hmm, Um,
1: and some are techniques you can use, you know, outside of growing season. Um, and and so, you know, right now, um, cause we're going into the summer solstice, if you're somebody who's getting ready to turn over crop beds, um, or, or you're gonna have some beds that are fallow, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: cause you're gonna be harvesting out your garlic, you're gonna be harvesting out your potatoes but it's too early to put in fall crops and too hot. Um, So you're going to have this space. You could solarize those spaces. Um, And so solarization is one of my favorite techniques because it it lets you kind of in that summer pause where it's really too hot to be growing or replanting things, um, it lets you use that pause to radically and permanently reduce the weed load you know, in a better spot in your garden or, you know, on a larger plot of land.
2: So, yeah, you're now you're doing that with tarps or plastic or uh, what are you using for that generally?
1: Yeah, so solarization, just so, like, listeners are clear, it is, um, you know, have you ever, uh, like, laid a window down on a mm-hmm. section of grass in your yard?
0: Oh, yeah. You, know, you just yellow. had an old win-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had an old window laying around. You threw it somewhere in the yard, and you come back a few days later, and that spot is basically, you know, burned to a crisp. That, that's what solarization is. But instead of using, you know, windows, um, you use greenhouse-grade clear plastic. Okay.
2: Now I've seen some people recommend using like a black plastic or a blue tarp or something like that. Uh, is that something different? In solarization? What is that?
1: Yeah, so that is oculation. Okay, Um, just heating up the ground more than anything. Well, actually, the black tarp does not warm up the ground almost at all.
0: Um,
1: So, so, you know, this is, uh, you know, so so we'll kind of be technical for a moment. Um, So, oculation, you know, in the winter, it will lightly warm the ground. And oculation works. So, oculation is a technique you can do at any time. But it's an especially good technique to do to plots um, during off-season. Okay. So, you know, you harvest out your, all your garden crops, you know, late October to early November, depending on where you are in the country. And you have this bare ground. Um, you know, I go through both for solarization and for oculation um, with a push mower. And I mow it very thoroughly just to reduce. Um, Anything that might puncture a tarp,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, you know, just to make kind of a nice, really clean, um, you know, reduced residue surface. So I'll pass over it two or three times with a push mower with the deck getting lower each pass. Um, And then with oculation, you'll spread a black tarp and black is preferred because it, especially in the winter, it does warm the soil. Mm -hmm. And what happens in oculation, though, is you're just going to, and um, with both of these techniques, you need to make sure the soil is adequately moist because um, both techniques need adequate soil moisture mm-hmm. to be effective. Um, so, if you need to, you'll add water to the soil. And then, once the soil is adequately moist, um, with both techniques, you spread either for solarization a clear tarp or for oculation a black tarp. Um, so, the one thing is the prep work for both these techniques. Is basically identical, um, you know, preparing an area that's mowed down and clear of anything that can, you know, damage the tarps, and making sure they have sufficient moisture in the soil. Um, but then once you spread the tarps, they work completely differently. So in oculation, um, the, the tarp will warm the soil slightly, especially in you know winter time, and um, that will cause seeds you know that are in the top inch or so of the soil to germinate mm. but what happens is they germinate and it's like a horror movie for plants
2: no, no sunlight
1: so so. <laughs> yeah and, and there's no air yeah,
0: okay yeah. Uh,
1: so in, bo- in both of these techniques as well another common mistake is you want the tarps as tight against the ground as possible Um, Mm -hmm. which is partly why mowing is so important to get that, you know, get that good ground contact. Um, cause if, if the, if the tarps are loose in both techniques, it really reduces the overall effectiveness. Um, so in oculation, stuff will germinate and it, you know, comes up in a, you know, there's very little oxygen under the tarp. There's no sunlight under the tarp. So stuff germinates and then it just dies. And, and so, it does a really, really good job of helping reduce what's known as the soil seed bank. Um, you know, which is basically the fact that like every handful of soil contains you know hundreds to sometimes thousands of seeds
0: mm-hmm.
1: built up over you know forever and ever. Um, and so, inoculation, you know, it, it gets a bunch of those seeds to germinate and then die. And as long as you don't go back through until or otherwise turn up lower layers of the soil, yeah. um, you know, oculation done well can reduce um, weed pressure by a solid, you know, anywhere from 50 to 80% okay. in, in a bed. Um, and, you know, you can also do oculation um, repeatedly in a particular bed. So, um, you know, Curtis Stone, who's a pretty famous, You know, one Mm -hmm. is Curtis is just a great guy, Uh, but he's a very, very good farmer, and I think he was one of the people who popularized um, flame weeding Mm -hmm. beds, uh, you know, after oculating. So instead of having to wait real long for stuff to die, you know, in that technique, you're tarping the bed like for Mm -hmm. oculation, but instead of waiting for stuff to grow and then die under the tarp, you pull the tarp and you kill it with a flame weeder.
2: Yeah, get them to germinate and then kill them. Don't use the the, the tarp or the plastic to kill it. Just kill it quicker. Yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, you know, this is actually a fairly old farming technique um, creating what are known as like stale or false seed beds. Um, This is where if you do, you know, if you need to kind of improve the soil structure a little bit, you can go through a bed and you can lightly um, cultivate it. Mm -hmm. So just another good thing for listeners who may not understand the difference, in tillage, the difference between cultivation and tillage is depth. Um, So in tillage, you're generally going four or more inches deep into the soil. In cultivation, you're generally staying, you know, three inches and less, but really usually more like, you know, two inches or so, Mm -hmm. just hitting that top of the soil, Um, in cultivation and so you know what a lot of what a lot of people do now is they'll cultivate a bed or an area they'll tarp it because that cultivation turns up a lot of the seeds that are just in the top layer Um, and then they'll take the tarp off you know after about 30 to 45 days when they have a lot of good germination and then they go through and they and you can either flame weed it or you can cultivate it a second time okay and then you could retarp it, and then you can do it again, and you know two rounds of that done properly um, you know creates a great great just a, a really great area for a wide range of crops
2: okay so so say thirty to forty five days for that's uh, that, that uh, way now, what about for solarization is it how long does it take to do that
1: yeah so so with solarization um you know with, with oculation, you might gently warm the soil. With solarization, you are basically creating a giant sun-powered microwave. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And the goal in solarization isn't to get things to germinate. It is to drive up the temperature of the soil um, to the point where it completely kills um, plants, certain pests, certain soil-borne pathogens, Mm -hmm. um, and it sterilizes a wide range of weed seeds. Um, what, you know, while they're still in the soil,
2: you know, well, um, I've, I've, I've looked into solariza- solarization a lot for the weed control, but what you just said there, I've never considered, uh, I mean, we had, there's a lot of like grubs and things for these beetles that live a few inches down and it would kill those as well, I guess, huh?
1: It, it can, depending on how you do it and how long you do it, you know, for, hmm. for grubs, you know, especially things that have that soil larva stage, yeah. um, the ideal method for dealing with those is to apply beneficial nematodes.
2: Nematodes, yeah. I was just wondering. You mentioned, you know, killing insects and things with the uh, solarization. <laughs> I think they generally go down a little deeper, though, probably, so it probably doesn't affect them as much.
1: Yeah, and well, and it really depends on the pest, you know, because like solarization, yeah. um, I love doing it um, after my brassicas, so cabbages, mm-hmm. kale,s and things. Yeah. Because if any of the you know worm that attacks those crops happens to make it, you know, for whatever reason they drop in, you know, they drop into the soil and make it to that reproductive stage because they're not very deep. Um, you know, solarization can really help break some of those pest grub cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it can definitely help Like there's places in California where they've done studies where they'll use a technique called biosolarization, um, where, where they'll, they'll rip open the soil, you know, 12, 16 inches deep, and they'll incorporate uh, huge amounts of uncomposted material mm. into the soil. And then they'll water, and then they'll tarp it, and then you get solarization plus composting.
2: Yeah, it would actually just speed up the composting process a lot, too. Break that heat up really fast and, and really cook it in there, yeah.
1: Oh, and and, you know, if you have really, really bad soil, That you and you know, you have you want to put in like an an organic orchard or something else like that, it's a fabulous way to quickly improve soil, get rid of a lot of disease and pest pressure,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and get rid of your weed problems all at the same time.
2: (laughs) Now, I know some people uh, worry about solarization, uh, that it kills off. Like good microbes and you know microbiology in your soil, is there a, is there a fear of that, or does it go down deeper? Or it go, I mean, you're really only affecting a few inches down. It's not it's not really. A, I mean, it's a pretty soil's pretty insulative thing. I mean, it is, it's probably only going maybe three, four, five inches down with the heat. It's not it's not really affecting anything deeper than that, is it?
1: Yeah. So the studies that have been done on it um, generally show that solarization is not. Um, you know, overly damaging to the soil food web. Mm-hmm. So you talk about you know larger things that live in the soil, like earthworms and other stuff. Yeah, you know they get they they, they get out of the way. Right. Um, and they're going to move to adjoining patches and stuff. Um, and a lot of bacteria um, that are beneficial in the soil can survive being heated up. Um, so so. You know, overall, I think the evidence um, shows that there are a few beneficial species of soil bacteria that don't do real well with solarization, um, but you can easily replenish those, um, mm-hmm. you know, just by making some compost tea or something else. Yeah. And after you solarize, go through. And spray.
2: Yeah, if you, I mean, um, I would think that it would have a pretty big effect on probably the the fungal parts of the soil. But you could actually uh, re inoculate with that with like a with like a uh, a mushroom compost or something. I would think to kind of boost that back uh, when you're done.
1: Yeah, see, I've never at least for us, um, you know. So I generally use solarization as one step,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then my solarization is usually followed um, by either cover crops or mulching. Mm, yeah. Um so the, these are our other favorite techniques.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so like we're in the middle of getting all of our sweet potatoes out. And so um I had this big area that was cilantro and some other cool season greens. And we harvested and sold a bunch of those. And it's gotten too hot for them, so they're all going to flower and bolting on me and whatnot. Um so that area we were Finally ready. It finally got warm enough to put the sweet potatoes out. Um, so we solarized it. And as the sweet potatoes go in, um, they go into little mounds and then the entire area is buried under like four to six inches of wood chips.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good method. I mean, a lot of people, you know, have seen the Back to Eden movie, and they're they're doing that style. Uh, me, I mean, I use, I do use some wood chips, but I grow, you know, I grow more like a, a square foot method. I mean, I really pack my bed so full of vegetables and and things that i want to eat that i get weeds but they're here and there instead of just you know real thick because there's there's you can't see the soil everything is so packed in there and growing so tight together there's really no room for weeds to grow you know too much in, in those areas i have some beds that are a little more open like tomato beds are a little bit more open peppers things like that they're a little bit more spread across but there's actually some weeds I let grow in those beds, like purslane. It stays low. Yep. You know, as long as you keep it low, I don't worry about it. But it's almost just like a, a cover crop underneath the tomatoes or underneath the peppers. It doesn't affect them. You know, so I don't. I just let it grow, and then I use it in my salads. So it's kind of a double benefit.
1: Yeah, and that's you know, we had some people out on the farm a few weeks ago because we were doing some on, you know, some intro gardening classes, and they were amazed that underneath my rows of peppers, it's a mixture of clover, lamb's quarter, mm-hmm. and purslane. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, you know, we've been eating out the purslane. And as soon as it looks like it's going to go to seed, you know, we, we generally won't let it go to seed on us mm-hmm. um, right. just because we have so much of it and there's only so much purslane a family of seven can eat. Um, <laughs> I, I don't worry too much
2: about the purslane. The lamb's quarter, if you let it go to seed, it can take over. I've definitely had that to own a spot.
1: <laughs> yeah, lamb's quarter is another one where we, we, you know, try and make sure. The nice thing is with lamb's quarter, those in my experience, and you know, this is one thing I talk about in the book is understanding how to prioritize weed species. Because mm-hmm. um, at least for us, lamb's quarter basically will never go to seed until the really late summer, but more generally the early fall. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas purslane for us, we had purslane wanting to feed already like, you know, three or four weeks ago in the high tunnel.
2: Yeah. I have some out here that's already looks like it's going to seed. So yeah, I understand it goes quick. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and so with purslane, we already have so much purslane pressure. We're like, Yep, we're going to kind of stay on top of that one this year. <laughs> yeah. Eat a lot of it and knock it back. But clover yeah, is that you know, way,
2: too. Clover can get really tall if you let it, I mean, not real, real tall, but, I mean, it can definitely overtake plants and stuff if you let it get too thick and too tall. I mean, it can definitely overcome some things.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's where we use clover, especially with, um, you know, our tall growing crops. Mm-hmm. So yeah. our peppers, our tomatoes, and um, there's a really useful tool. Um, it's a hand sigh. So in, instead of, you know, having this really, really large sigh
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you can go through and cut down an area, uh, a hand sigh is, you know, about, you know, it's an eight inch curved blade. So much, much smaller, much, much easier to handle. And what we'll do for those kind of living understories of red and white clover is until the plants are tall enough, um, you know, every few weeks. We just run through and I hand sigh carefully down around the plants. Yeah. Um, You know, only takes me to do an entire row of peppers or an entire row of cucumbers or something. Probably doesn't even take me 10 minutes Mm -hmm. um, to to get it to drop back down and not be a nuisance to the plants until they get a little taller.
2: Yeah. I've definitely uh, used. A lot of lower plants, you know, like I'll run a lot of uh, squash or something underneath tomatoes and around peppers and you know along things that are taller and let those leaves just kind of cover up the ground as well. I mean, no doubt about it, bare soil it, it will cause you problems because if you don't fill that space,
1: nature will for sure yeah
2: it'll, it'll, it'll put something there,
1: yeah, and that's something then that will seed um, you know and then then you get on that cycle, just mm-hmm. the endless the, the endless weed cycle. Yeah. You know, so after solarization or oculation, uh, you know, we do also do very, very tight planting. Um, so, you know, a lot of people kind of the way they orient their planting, um, you know, like parallel rows, Yeah. Um, you know, like that always just baffled me because I'm like, there's a hole in between each set of plants. So, you know, all of our planting patterns, are offset rows because then you Mm -hmm. can move the rows a couple inches closer together. Yeah. And since most plants grow in like a semi-circular shape, they, they, you know, eat up that empty space. Yep. Um, so there's some really simple stuff you can do like that for, you know, first time growers to not only let you pack more into a space. Hold
2: on. You're talking more like a, instead of going straight rows, more like a zigzag in your rows. Is that what you're kind of talking about?
1: Well, the row, well, in, the row it's, yeah, in the row itself, it'll be straight.
0: Okay, um, but say,
1: okay. you know, say I'm doing cabbage. Instead of doing two rows of cabbage where the cabbage are right next to each other in oh, the yeah. two rows, yeah. we'll do three rows of cabbage. Mm, yeah, okay. And and the outer two rows will be the same, but the inner row will be halfway in between, yep. filling that hole yeah. um, that you would get from between the outer row. And um, it fills in so, so nicely.
2: Well, John, um, where, you gonna, and, and where are you going to walk now? You just took out your path.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know I mean? For cabbage and stuff, you, you don't need to walk in the cabbage because, <laughs> you know, it, you, you just harvest at the end of the season and then you harvest, the, you <laughs> right. know, the, the biggest heads on the outside first and slowly kind of work your way through the bed. <laughs> and,
2: and, it, and if you don't have weed, you don't need to be in there.
1: <laughs> right. you, and, and that is the nice thing, you know, when the, when the cabbage are small, the, you know the couple times you need to weed, and you know, and and we use tight planting patterns for things like cabbage in conjunction again with you know uh, rotted wood chip mulch. Yeah. Um, and so that you know, so like between the mulch and the tight planting pattern, we'll have very little upfront weeding, and then by the time the cabbage begin to fill in, they completely shade everything for the most part, and it, it makes you know really easy to manage beds.
2: Yeah, yeah. So let's see, on the practical side, so say you're going to empty out some beds here. Say something's ready to harvest this next weekend. You're going to clean out a bed, a whole row of something. Uh, what's your next step? What are you going to do? Are you going to do anything if you're not ready to plant anything in there right away? What, are your, what is going to be your step uh, this next weekend if you're cleaning out a bed to pre- prepare that bed to keep it weed free for the next crop?
1: Yeah, well, are you going it to go with oculation
2: what... or are you, are you going to?
1: Yeah, well, you know, this time of year, um, especially because since last year we were getting ready to move. Mm-hmm. And so, like I basically let my kids do whatever they wanted in the garden, um and so that did not involve them keeping on top of you know th- keeping the few weeds that did come up in check yeah um so this year, we have a lot more weed pressure mm-hmm. than we have had you know in a very long time, so this year, every time a bed turns over, it gets solarized okay, okay. um so because um I really want to knock back that soil seed bank, sun
2: And and how long will you leave that plastic on there?
1: It all depends on when I need to plant. Okay. So you, um, you just leave so, it on until it's ready to plant, basically. Well, I usually won't leave it on more than, you know, with, with solarization, I generally won't leave it on more than 14 days. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, but but there's a bed, I, I think it was yesterday. Um, yeah, it would have been yesterday morning. So I'm walking around the bed right now as we talk that I mowed yesterday morning and I spread the tarp on yesterday and it was a solid sea of green. You know, Mm -hmm. so this is it's probably like a 30 by 20 foot area somewhere in that ballpark. Um, And already since yesterday morning, everything under the tarp is yellowed or brown. Um, It's just, you know. So, 36 hours, and that was, you know, today was a mostly um, cloudy day. We were supposed yeah. to get rain, and we were always a bridesmaid, never a bride today.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm that, too. <laughs>
1: I'm going to have to water
2: when I get off of this podcast, matter of fact.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're just about into drought, unfortunately. Um, So I think the the USDA drought map has our part of Kentucky now listed as at risk for this year because we've been we're so low on rain um, for the past three months. So but but, you know, that's one of the benefits of mulching Mm -hmm. and tightly planting um, because you hold in the moisture so much better. You don't get nearly as much stress and evaporation
0: for your plants.
2: The, the, this heat wave we're having the lack of rain i planted a bunch of uh, small trees uh this year and you know that's not ideal for <laughs> new trees so i've been trying to really put the water to them you know here the last couple weeks so i'm hoping that they, they weather this all right and make it because i know this next week even we got like some 90 degree temps and no rain in like the next week at least so that's, that's that's tough on them yeah, I, mean, I got mulch yeah. on them, but it's still really hard on young trees. I mean, these things are only like foot and a half tall, you know, so it's really hard on them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's where you know, mulch for trees. You know, drip irrigation or something mm-hmm. else, soaker hoses or something to make your life easier.
2: Yeah, I got them sort um, of spread apart. You know, I got them kind of spread apart and then just kind of all over the yard. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm just having to really get out there. I'm just taking buckets and <laughs> just saturating <them> every <laughs> night. It's really all I can do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, so like we'll we'll solarize most beds this summer. Um just to kind of get them get them back to homeostasis if we end up not being able to move later in the year or until mm. next year just so that you know, nobody knows what's gonna happen anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's a um, year. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, so we're so we're gonna solarize everything back and then it will just really depend on what we're gonna do with that particular bed come fall. Yeah. Um you know what? Where we go next after solarizing it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the beds I might cover crop. Um, you know, so I might put some of the beds into buckwheat um, or some of the beds into a clover or something.
2: Yeah, and then um, you just you just cut that down and plant when you're when you're ready, huh? Just before it goes to yeah, seed.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You know, so like some of that stuff. Um, you know, like there's some cover crops that will frost kill. So Mm -hmm. if we wait and plant them late enough, they'll grow, and then, you know, the first hard frost will kill them off, and then, you know, I'll just come through and mow them. And, and, you know, this is where you can, you know, if you get a good stand of, you know, oats or some other cover crop, you can basically grow your own mulch right in place. Um, So we've done that a couple years where I've put in sections of the garden into a really heavy Um, you know grain type cover crop to improve improve the soil and then you know it basically gets you know frost killed and then mowed and then there's already a mulch to plant into for your transplants Mm -hmm. and it's you know really nice and kind of easy to manage and stuff
2: yeah i've been the last uh, couple years i've just uh got bags of leaves <laughs> and it's really worked well for me and I've just, i just because i have a lot of raised beds mostly and then the raised beds i've just filled them up with just like a thick thick you know pile of leaves and i've put a tarp over that and then uh, those really break down really good and then i don't you know if there's a bunch left on there come spurring i'll just clean them off of there and then kind of start planting again but you know on, you know, put some mulch down if there's if it's not broke down real good or whatever because uh, some of the trees I'll, I'll use like i'll use a like a uh poplar tree or something and those don't those leaves don't break down real fast so there'll be a lot of leaves still left on there and it just creates this nice thick mat and it's almost like an insulated tarp or something you know on those beds and it seems to really and then what little does break down it just makes a great compost in there but uh, it does seem to take some weed pressure out too but you just got to be careful where you get your leaves and you know where what what, uh what you're putting on there you know you don't want to get much mixed in with weed seeds or anything like that you know that you've raked
1: up yeah, well, and the problem, you know, and this is especially true for hay and straw. Um,
0: mm-hmm, yeah,
1: it's l- less true for um, wood chips and leaves, but there are, especially for hay and straw, there's a number of persistent herbicides.
2: Yeah, the, the graze I know is one of them that will pass right through an animal.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and once it's in your soil, it takes you know, four or five years to break down. Yeah. Um, and so it's one reason I really, you know, I like wood chip mulches versus straw or hay for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I've never liked hay mulch. I know there's some people who swear by it, but you know, every load of hay mulch is you're bringing in just a gazillion weed seeds.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and, um, I'm just saying that, you know i thought the goal was not to have a lot of
2: weeds <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've, I've experienced that i've used hay before and you know straw and things and uh, i just i for some reason the, the leaves have seemed to be the easiest thing to get a hold of and seem to work really really well as far as just mulching you know for a winter mulch you know I, I do like the wood chips through the summer and stuff but uh just for the winter kind of like make this thick insulated bed on them it just seems to work really really well so i've, I've you know i've like Using that, but I've got all new beds this year. I put all new soil in them, you know. And I, I bought soil, and it, it was just it had a lot of weed seeds in it. I've been doing a lot of weeding this year because you know I made this transition and built all these new beds and stuff. And it's been a uh, I was curious to talk to you about this because you know there's been a lot of uh, a lot of weed pressure where I don't have things growing real thick together, and I do have a couple beds in my backyard that I, I haven't I, I left them empty this year. I just didn't do anything with them because I just kind of wanted to give them a rest because they've been pretty busy, and I just, yeah, I didn't really want to mess with that right now, and weeds, I mean, it was bare soil, and it's just completely filled with, like, thistles and just all kinds of uh, really nasty, nasty stuff. And some of them were already starting to go to seed. Well, I didn't even take a chance. Of like, generally, I put a lot of weeds in the compost and stuff, but these things were going to seeds, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not even going to take a chance of that not getting hot enough. I just put them in trash bag and threw them in the trash because I'm just not going to mess with it or burn them or something, you know. I'm not even going to take a chance of that being in my compost.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, I never um, feed weeds. I never put um, plant matter weeded out of the garden into my compost. Oh yeah, I do so some things. Just,
2: some things I do.
1: Yeah, and and that's where since we have pigs, um, anytime we do need to weed out an area, yeah. <laughs> all of that material we feed to our pigs, and then I... all of the pig manure, you know, gets spread on pasture. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I I just like for me personally because. Um, it's so hard to get compost to ensure that like, um, all parts of the compost pile get hot enough.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a big chance you're taking if you throw them in there. Uh, another thing, you know, I do with a lot of weeds, if I don't want to put them in the compost, and even if I don't see seeds in them or whatever, is just make a big batch of compost tea. We just shove it in a you know bucket and, and just get it soaked in some water and make a good compost tea out of weeds even. I've done a lot of weeds like that to make a compost tea and then you strain it out real good and make sure you no know, seeds or anything getting the, in the actual tea when you're done, you know. But that seems to work pretty well. Too. It's another way to make use of those if if you don't have pigs and rabbits and all those things, that will eat all those weeds.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's where, really, you know, I don't like, only time I'll burn stuff is if it has a disease issue um, or some other issue like that.
2: Yeah. You blighted know, I, tomatoes. I don't, I don't mess around with like tomatoes that got real bad blight. I don't put them in my compost or anything like that. I'd rather just burn those.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, you know, but like if you have beds that are going to be um, empty for a while, you know, I, I, like spreading leaves on the beds, making mm-hmm. sure there's enough water. Um, one thing that might help you with the poplar leaves being slow to break down mm-hmm. um, is some leaves are slow to break down because of the lack of calcium.
0: Oh.
1: Um, so, you know, mixing in um, just a very, you know, a very small bit of powdered lime mm-hmm. um, or something like that may solve some of your issues with the leaves not breaking down as quickly
2: um, yeah i i guess i didn't really mind it i mean i just raked them off and put them back in the compost because they were partially broke down and i just put them in the compost and kind of got the veg ready it was all right but uh, yeah they, they're a leaf that does not break down fast for sure i mean like a lot of other leaves like there's some leaves you put on there and they break down like i'll put comfrey leaves on my garden those things break down in just days you know and they're gone yeah and uh, But you put, like, a, like I said, a tulip poplar or something on there, and it just uh, set all winter long and <laughs> part into the spring, and it still didn't break down.
1: Well, Or, you know, what else you could try that would be interesting is to cut a certain amount of comfrey leaf in with the poplar or other leaf.
2: Yeah, because it's generally used like a – a lot of people use it as a compost starter to kind of gen- get the thing going, you know. So, yeah, if you kind of mixed it in, yeah, that would probably work too.
1: Yeah, I feel like you'd probably get some really – you know, because the leaves – Um, leaves are so great for improving your soil. Oh yeah. Um, and so, you know, leaf mold, which is basically making, you know, compost out of leaves by piling a whole bunch of leaves, um, real easy to make. You can do it in like a cage, you know, just take some wire, make like a three foot wide cage, put a pallet in the bottom, fill it with leaves, let it rot down until spring, um, might have to turn it once. Like, leaf mold, studies show, is so good for improving soil quality. Yeah, um, I've used you know, it to is,
2: actually make a, a, a bed soil, and I've used it instead of, you know, something else to make it more fluffy or whatever. Because, you know If you look like a Mel's Mix, for example, uh, some of the ingredients in that, I'll actually replace part of that with leaf mold, and it works just as well. It really gives it that fluffiness it kind of creates it, you know, gets that little bit of fluffiness that leaf mold does.
1: Yeah, it's it's fabulous, so. Um, so yeah, so maybe comfrey will 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 be your key yeah. to getting it getting it to break down. You know, like in in raised beds, um, you could just you know tarp over them until you're ready to plant. Yeah. So, because as you mentioned earlier, the one thing you just never want to have available is bare soil. Right. So bare soil is always going to be a problem. Yeah. In nature terms of,
2: Nature does not
1: like it. <laughs> it will do yeah. something with it. <laughs> You know, so if if you don't have enough time to, you know, put a cover crop through that will, you know, accomplish some of the goals. Um, You know, one of the big reasons I'm such a big fan of certain, you know, especially of clovers, is you can save so much money um, and avoid basically one of the most common problems homesteaders and gardeners run into with their soil. Um, if you'll grow clovers consistently, along with or before or after certain plants, because uh-huh. um, you know, feel nitrogen, like, yeah, yeah. Well, because well, you know, because um, I do some soil consulting for some farmers and some other people, and a, a consistent problem a lot of um, homesteaders and gardeners run into is they use a lot of animal manures
0: mm-hmm.
1: for fertility in their garden and. The problem is most animal manures are moderately high in nitrogen, but they're really, really high in phosphorus and potassium. And so somebody puts in a garden or whatever, and the first year, the garden does great. Um, So what do they do? Well, they do what they did the first year again because, oh, well, it works so great for me, so I'm just going to do it again. And generally speaking, the second year, it still does really good. And then the third year, I get a phone call from them, or the fourth year, and they're like, my plants aren't yielding anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, have you done a soil test? And, the, and, you know, a lot of times, no, they haven't done a soil test. Because um, even though they're cheap and even though they're easy, it's still one of the most often neglected things um, even some farmers refuse to do is, you know, get, get a simple soil test to avoid problems. So you send them to go get a soil test, and it'll come back. And they'll have really, really elevated phosphorus and potassium levels.
0: Uh Um,
1: And, you know, because, you know, manures are just always going to um, not give you enough nitrogen and give you too much phosphorus and potassium Mm -hmm. over time. Um, and, And so a lot of people just create problems for themselves that way. By relying so heavily on animal manures.
2: Yeah, I add a little bit of rabbit manure to beds, but I generally I generally compost all of it, and then I get a good balance. You know, of just you know, there's like I said, there's a lots of comfrey and grass and leaves, and you know, some rabbit manure, maybe a little. You know, I quail, I got quail manure as well, and put that in there. And I, you know, I, I compost it for several months generally before I get it on the garden. It seems to really make a big difference. You know, I get more of a balance that
1: way. Yeah, well, and you know, that's where I tell people. You really don't want to um, be over, overly reliant on any one, you know, mm-hmm. soil building input for your ground, um, you know, for a- annual growing space. Pastures are different, and then or- orchards are a different, you know, animal as well, um, but especially for your annual growing spaces, learning to make, you know, nice, diverse soil building inputs. Uh, we'll avoid a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah,
0: because okay. you,
1: know, you know you'll you'll find this story funny, but I had one lady um, who, for years, she took like all of the bagged grass clippings from their yard and put it on her raised beds. You know, so this you know it's like a twenty-five thousand square foot yard or whatever, you know, for <laughs> two or three seventy or eighty foot raised beds. Oh wow. And it totally, um, you know, because I believe grass is high in phosphorus, um, it totally jacked up the phosphorus levels in her soil in those raised beds. But she didn't have any weeds, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah, she didn't have any weeds, um, you know, because she was like, oh, I was using the grass clippings to mulch the beds so that, you know, it would keep weeds out and and I mean, you know, the phosphorus levels were—it it, it was almost like you could mine. You know, it's like the level of phosphorus <laughs> you would find in a, in a rock phosphate mine. Oh wow. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. So nothing
2: was growing, wanting to grow well in that. Yeah, for sure.
1: Oh yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, so that take a lot. take a lot to
2: correct too. I mean, what, what's the? the st- I mean, just have to add the other stuff, try to lift up everything else and balance it out. I mean, that could take some time to get that back balanced out for sure.
1: Well, in a raised bed, what I told her that made her unhappy at first until she realized that she was going to have six raised beds instead of three raised beds is I told her to half the raised beds, take mm. half of the material out and buy, um, you know, gave her a recipe for what to replace it with. Start over. It would be real. <laughs> yeah. They basically would have no phosphorus. Yeah. Um, wow. It, yeah. And I basically said like, there's no way you're going to get this phosphorus out. Like it's, it's here to stay. The only thing, you, you know, um, there's another lady who sent me soil test results. So this is the nice thing about raised beds. It's easier to fix a yeah. soil problem in a raised bed because if you need to take out 20 or 30 percent of the material, um, you, you know, you can move it to another part of your property. You can use it to amend soil somewhere else that might need those. You can use it to fertilize your lawn and then you can just, you know, put new material into the bed. And don't make don't make those same choices again that led to that problem. Yeah.
2: It's not cheap though. Um, <laughs> it's not cheap. Yeah, filling <laughs> filling fill raised beds gets pretty costly. If you got a lot of them, it can it can definitely add up.
0: Yeah,
1: well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Well, and that's where I did a talk for the online Mother Earth News Fair um, about container gardening, um, and <sighs> talked about you know how to make more of your own mix and material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, because if you have space. Um, where you can get loads and loads of wood chips, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of raised bed mix, basically rotted wood chips. Oh yeah, you know, two two and a half year old rotted wood chips. So if if you want to do a lot of raised bed gardening, um, and you you have access to large amounts of wood chips, one of the best things you can do is you know just create a spot to age wood chips, you know, and if, if you want to age them faster. You can, you know, spray them with different things like a comfrey spray or something um, that will radically speed up their breakdown, um, and then you can make, you know, really large amounts of raised bed mix.
2: Yeah, right I understand. Yeah, like 15 years ago, I worked for a county highway department and you know, there's, you're constantly cutting, you know, trees off the side of the road and just, they had, they just had piles. I mean, they had this huge mountain of wood chips out there and they never really done anything with it. And I would go in with that thing with the inloader every once in a while and stir that up because it gets a and, you know, because it gets get so much heat and stuff, you know, from this composting. And I remember digging into that with that inloader and it was just like the blackest, richest soil in the middle of that wood pile you've ever seen. That wood oh, yeah. Pile? It was just, uh, it was amazing. I thought this is some good. stuff right
1: yeah and and, you know like this you know if you have reader you know listeners I should say who are new who are you know because of everything going on really want to um, do a lot more growing next year but a simple thing you can do this summer is you know try and get a load of wood chips delivered to your place and start picking up some coffee grounds
0: Mm -hmm. from
1: a couple local because like wood chips plus coffee grounds yeah just mix them together make sure they get water mix them once or twice um, you could make, man, you know, uh, a load of wood chips from one of the small chip trucks is usually about four or five yards of wood mm-hmm. chips, a yard being 27 cubic feet. Yeah. Is so that basically how you, you built could,
2: the soil on your property? I mean, just using wood chips?
1: Well, I used um, a number of things. Okay. So we do worm composting. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, those ibc water totes those big 275 gallon cube totes we actually do worm compost in those at at that scale and size um so we we you know we basically use a mixture of you know targeted soil improving amendments like worm compost and compost um, cover crops and mulches to improve the soil you know i said earlier like when we moved here Our soil was less than half a percent um, organic matter, and our last set of soil test results pegged our soils' organic matter at 21 to 32 percent, depending on where the the sample was taken.
2: But you were talking about earlier building like six inches of soil in a, something. Is that, I mean, just, you're just talking mostly, probably do a lot of that with wood chips and, and just compost and things, right? Is what you're really getting at as far as building it up, actually making the soil deeper.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: and, and again, like one of the, mo- one of the best um, soil improvers that's absolutely free um, in most of the country and is available in large, large amounts is coffee ground. Mm hmm. Um, so so if it, it, all you can get your hands on are wood chips and coffee grounds, you could do amazing things to improve your soil. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, and I'll tell you something else. We talked about leaves earlier. If you can get a leaf mulcher, like one of them, they're like a barrel-looking thing. You just drop the leaves in and it really mulches them up really fine. And if you have a lot of leaves, if you've got places where you can get a lot of leaves, you can get a pretty good mountain of uh, mulched-up leaves. And that, once you mulch them up, they break down really fast.
0: Yeah. You're talking like the it.
1: thing that like basically shreds them nicely.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One of my, one of my great sadnesses is I had a neighbor that had like an eight inch gas powered, um, chipper uh-huh. that he sold for only like 75 or a hundred bucks.
0: Oh man. Uh, and
1: yeah. I found out after he sold it. Cause I was like, uh, uh that, that's my dream. I was like, I have so much shrubby brushwood and stuff. Um, I would be chipping, you know, so much stuff that we have to burn off. I would be chipping.
2: Yeah, I have a little electric mulcher. I don't recommend those. It does like little limbs and stuff. I cut off a little bit of trees, but wow, that thing jams up so easy and it's more of a pain. I mean, I use it every year because it's what I have, but yeah, the gas ones are so much
1: better. Yeah, you you know, so I love mulches because you're going to save an incredible amount on watering needs, um, you know, especially as your soil improves. But we figure um wood chip, you know, rotted wood chip mulches reduce the amount of water we use probably by about seventy five percent each season. Oh. Um and so when you're on a well, um, you know, that's a lot less wear and tear on your well pump and whatnot. Mm. Um if you're on city water, that's just a lot less chlorine and other junk, you know, you're putting down in your garden.
2: And a lot less money um, out of your wallet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, that's the worst part, because, you know, in the city, the thing I always forget is a lot of people, you pay the sewage side of your water, Mm -hmm, even if it's not going down the sewer system. Yep,
2: it is the more expensive part, too. If you ever look at a water bill, it's definitely the more expensive part.
1: Oh, yeah, you know, so um, it's, you you know, a 75% reduction in the amount of water you need to use is a real substantial time and cost savings, um, you know, regardless of where you're getting that water from. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it just does, does such a great job of keeping weeds away. Um, so, you know, you're building soil, you're stopping weeds, and you're saving on water. Um, so. It's all
2: connected. It's all connected. I mean, you're doing the one, you're, you're benefiting other things. It ain't, you know, we're trying to prevent weeds, but there, there's so many other benefits to all this. I mean, it just all works together and you end up with a just all of it working together and just making it better, you know, all the way around. Your garden will be better in every way when you do a lot of these things we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and that's the goal. Is just like I love growing things, um, but I love other things too.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's so. Yeah. Uh, you must spend all your time uh, in the garden,
1: huh? <laughs> yeah, you know. So I'm always well, and you know, people are always amazed at how little time we spend in the garden for how much we grow. Yeah. Um, you know, so we ha- we we really try and have a very very high, you know, um, basically. I really want to be making 30 to $50 an hour in my yeah. garden. Um, and it's
2: about—it's really about setting up the right infrastructure, getting it established. I mean, because there is a lot of work at first, getting it established. But once things are you know, really clicking, then it just gets easier for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, that first year or so, because you're learning and other stuff, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, it, it's not going to be as productive. Um, but your goal should be, you know, to really look and see, or go learn from people who have really, really productive systems in place. Yeah. And you know, why they're productive and how they work. That's um,
2: why I, I just love YouTube and, and podcasts and things like that. Because you just, you know, you, you watch these people, you listen to these people. And if you got some people local that you can go and actually talk to them, I mean, that's even better. I mean, you can get hands-on experience or see what they're actually doing right there. But all that stuff working together, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, uh, on, the online uh, situation has a lot of problems. But it's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of blessings that come with it as well, for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, like with a lot of the conferences and stuff canceled. We had people just be like, can you do some classes right on your farm? You know, you should do this. Like, you know, um, yeah. and so we've been doing just little 10-person classes that are like three hours yeah, um, that people have just said. It's like it's so great to walk through an entire system. And, and you know what?
2: There's, there's probably people that will come to something like that that would never go to the actual conference, too. So it's probably benefiting even a lot more people in the end, or other people, you know.
1: Yeah, especially people who, like, want a chance to really dive a bit deeper and discuss a bit, you know, really kind of see, you know, not just a 40-minute talk with pictures, Mm -hmm. but a lot of detailed information about how stuff works and why you do it this way and, you know, what about this and what about that. Right. Yeah.
2: There's so much to learn, but you know, the best way to learn is just to get out there and start doing it. I mean, you can learn as you go. You can talk to people and you can learn things and have some failures. I've learned way more from failures than I probably have from other people even, and I've learned a lot from other people. <laughs> so, I mean, just the best thing to do is just get out there and start doing it, you know. I just encourage people to just, you know, get started doing something cuz you're not it's not going to be perfect off the bat. There's no way it's going to work. If it works out perfect for you, then you're you're a rare breed, but uh, you know, you just can't be afraid of it. You just got to start. I, I Talk to people who are just—they overanalyze and overanalyze and think about it and think about it and talk about it—and they just—they don't do anything, you know. And it's like, do it, <laughs>
1: you know. Already put,
2: <laughs> put a seed in some dirt. <laughs> Come on, go.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, well, you know, like again, when we lived in an apartment, um, I was so inspired to start growing things. That you know, I started composting stuff in the basement of the apartment, <laughs> and and um, I bought some of those earth boxes. If you yeah. remember, they were like a big fad, I uh-huh. guess you know, er- late 1990s or early 2000s. So I bought some of those, and on my way to class in the morning, you know, I'd walk outside and water my earth box if it needed water. And I'd move it around the courtyard of our apartment building so that it would get the best sun possible until <laughs> I came home. In the, and then I'd get home in the afternoon and all these people in the apartment building thought I was just insane. Um, you know, like, I it. like now they know this? it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, you, you know, um, I'm good friends with Congressman Thomas Massey. And one of the things that most impresses me about him and his wife is even when they were at MIT together, they grew food, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, because, so, you know, w- one of their life goals was to no matter what every single year grow things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, it's just such an inspiring thing because, you know, um, like, if he can pull that off, anybody can pull that off. If you, you know, yeah, if
2: you can get one meal a week from your garden, that's one less meal, you know, that you're buying from the store or eating out at or whatever. I mean, it's just something, it's one thing, you know, and then you can just grow from there.
1: Yeah, you know, for um for for this online Mother's News Fair, they, they asked some of the speakers, how much money do you save per year homesteading? Um, and so we kind of went through and we figured out, like, we save about twelve thousand dollars a year. Oh wow! Um, yeah, just raising some pigs, mm. raising some chickens, and growing a bunch of the produce we eat. because you know, we're a family of seven, and we can crush through, you know, two to three heads of lettuce, yeah. it, 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 you know, as the salad.
2: Like, you probably want to do to some eat. new math because if you haven't been to the grocery store and seen the prices of stuff lately, I bet that number is bigger now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it might be. You know, it's been. We get so little at the grocery store because I run a local food buying club um, Mm -hmm. in Louisville, Kentucky, and then we just grow and raise so much.
2: Um, Yeah, food prices are just getting... Easy. I mean, they're really going up. Which you know, I mean, we've talked about that before. That really a lot of that stuff's been underpriced for so long. That's why people freak out when they have to buy a, you know something that's raised in an organic way or whatever or natural way because it's so much more ext- expensive than the stuff in the store. And uh, so yeah, that stuff's just been so underpriced for so long, really. That maybe maybe that'll make people go. Oh, well, I might as well just buy the good stuff if I'm going to pay that price.
1: Well, oh, yeah, I was in um, Costco a couple weeks ago and. The the you know conventional bacon at Costco was ten dollars a pound mm. and limit one
2: it went up for sure
1: yeah and and I was just like you know the local Beyond Organic bacon that my buying club carries is ten forty nine a pound. And there yeah. is no limit on how many packages you can get.
2: If people get an understanding of that, it's going it's going to make some changes in some people's lives because uh, now if they can start comparing the prices and whatnot. But yeah, it's just uh, it's some good motivation to start growing your own food or, or even getting in contact with local growers that you can get the food from because uh, it, now's the time. I, I mean, I'm sure there's some minds being changed in all this and, and some some things being thought about. That haven't been thought about before with a lot of people, you know, with with their food and and how far their food travels and and what what really goes into getting that food. I mean, there's just – there's so – there's a lot of bad going on. There's no doubt about it. But I think there's a lot of thinking going on that maybe should have happened a long time ago, too, you know?
1: Yeah, it's – I I think from the numbers I've seen, um, there is a record number of new gardeners in the United States this year. You know, you're just – millions of people – But like, you know, uh, the people we had out to our farm for these classes so far this summer, I think over half of them had never really had a garden before.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, so it's I'm amazed at the number of people who um, are being motivated to take some measure of responsibility for their Mm -hmm. families, you know, preparedness and security and food security yeah i hope a lot of them
2: don't don't get discouraged when it doesn't like supply all their food the first year or something you know i just <laughs> i think sometimes people go into it with some expectations that aren't realistic like well we're just gonna grow our food you know and it's like well you're still you know where we spent you know still 75 percent of what we spent at the grocery store even after having a garden you know i just i think people sometimes come into it with some really high expectations and it doesn't you know especially the first couple of years doesn't turn out the way they want and they go oh, wow this wasn't worth it and then they bail out and i hope we don't see that. I'm hoping some people will stick it out. Realize that every little thing you do will, will eventually add up, and it makes a difference. It really does. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, have you figured out what one of your raised beds produces food dollar-wise per year for you?
2: No, I, I really don't. I don't think about it. Like that. we, I just try to eat as much as I can from the
1: garden.
0: I really do. I <laughs> don't
2: even. I don't even do the math. I just. I just eat everything I can from the garden and from you know livestock or whatever. I just buy. I just want to eat as little, uh, in, outside of that, as I have to. And I. I eat quite a bit outside of that, but you know, I eat a lot from the garden. You know, and that's all I really know. I just try to eat as much as I can it, cause I guess I get. I would get a little discouraged too, maybe because. I don't have, you know, dozens of acres where I can grow. You know, I can just fill the pantry up completely and have enough of everything to get me through all year, every year. I, I can't think like that, you know. So I just eat as much as I can from the garden. <laughs> I would say, I would say, sixty uh, percent of my food probably comes off this property, which is pretty amazing considering the that's, size of my property. I feel like.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's it, that's very impressive.
2: Yeah, I mean, so. I eat a lot from the garden and from, and quail and rabbit and, and just that meat source, you know. I mean, uh, I, it's a lot. I think I, probably on my meat, it's probably only like 20% on my meat comes from this property, but I would say it's probably in the, definitely 50 to 60% on the, on the vegetables, probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, we, we can't wait to move to be able to grow more on the fruit side. Yeah. So we, we would love if, if we can take kind of like our very solid base in vegetable production, mm-hmm. and you know we have a fair bit of perennials as well, um, but we would really, really love to to get to a property that let us do a lot more, um, a lot more on the fruit side.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's something I've even expanded on, even on this smaller property. I mean, I have planted uh, some pawpaw trees, and you know, I mean, I've already had already had pear and apple and uh, and mulberry. <laughs> and uh, some things like that and i put i put plums in and pe- and uh, peaches and pawpaw and almond tree and just some things like that i'm mean, just trying to really expand get a little bit more you know a, a variety in the in the fruit side of things and then and ever expanding the berries and things like that trying to grow more berries and things too so yeah i mean i like the diversity and, but when you do that you, you don't grow as much of any of any one thing you know so it's like yeah you, you're when you when you try to make your property a little more diverse on what you grow it definitely cuts down on big amounts of any one thing and and that can be a little difficult if you're trying to put food up for the winter you know
1: yeah well and you know one thing one thing my wife and i were talking about the other night because you know some people come like wow you grow so much and then some people come and they're like Why don't you grow more, though, because you have all this space or this or that? And, you know, we try and balance, um, you know, being good at a few things with, um, you know, because like we we could probably on this property, if we invested the money, probably grow 80% of all the food we needed for our family pretty easily. Um, But the amount of time and energy it would take to do that would take away from, You know, um, our elderberry syrup business, it would take away from us doing judo and jujitsu. It would take away from church and things. And so, you know, one thing I also encourage people is that balance.
2: Um, That's something we did this year. I mean, I cleaned out when I told you I made this transition and kind of what I'm doing is moving a lot of the beds up to the front, the side of the property. And I cleaned out the backyard. I mean, there's I I took out several red uh, of the raised beds out of the backyard. Because we have grandkids and we want a place for them to play, and we put it—you know—I've got a swing set back there, and we, you know, have a little pool back there for them, and we, they got some grass to run in. And it was just a balance, you know. I said, I love growing things, but I'm growing more than vegetables. We're growing some grandkids around here, you know. And we want to have them come over, and be able to play in the backyard, and have a good time, and and just be able to run around and be kids, you know. And and uh, it was it was kind of a transition. I think a lot of people would look at that and say, we well, you have that space back there," and I was like, "Yeah, I had that filled with vegetable one time, and uh, we just kind of transitioned it over and." I actually probably have a little less growing this year than I did last year. I'm going to expand that out into that side yard uh, over the next couple of years and get, you know, even have way more than what I had before. But this year I've actually got a little less than I had last year. But that's okay. You know, it's a balance for us, and it's just something we decided that was better for for the family, you know. well that was all happening before all this other tragedy happened in the world. (laughs) Now I'm thinking maybe I needed the food worse, but, you know, I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully you have good, you know, you've probably built up some local food options as well.
2: Yeah, we do. Um, we have some options there as well.
1: Yeah, because yeah, cause that's the big thing, too, especially for new growers, is you're always going to have certain crop failures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last year for us, our well went out, um, should, it, our well sprung a leak, I think early August. So the hottest, driest time possible is when the well decided to die, um, which means, you know, our, our, stuff, not in the high tunnel did fine, but everything in the high tunnel basically baked like chocolate chip cookies in a 450 degree oven. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and so we, we lost our entire high tunnel. Um, and, and, you know, it's just like stuff like that's gonna happen. You know, you're gonna, yeah. you're gonna have a crop overran by a pest you never knew existed. Um, you know, or you're going to get a hailstorm.
0: Mhm.
1: Um, or like this year, you know, one of the one of the things one of the things that really broke my heart for new gardeners this year was you know, back in February and March, yeah. you go by stores and they're already selling plants. Yeah. Everybody's and sell- them out there and sell- frost is even yeah. over yet, yeah. Oh yeah, and, and they're selling, you know, basil and other really really sensitive mm-hmm. plants in like March. Um, yeah. you know, because there's and then we get that, you know, we got a freeze. Yeah. And, we did
2: too. And I was, I was doing everything in my power and it worked. I mean, I did enough. To, I saved a lot of because I took some chances and I went early this year. I planted a lot of things early and, uh, I mean, it's paying off now, but I was worried about there for a few days. We had those really cold spells and I was. I was pulling every trick in the book out
0: and, uh, and I saved
2: it, but, but, uh, yeah, I didn't get any frost damage. I think I had like a couple things that got touched by it, but it wasn't bad. It was really mild and I was surprised because I mean, I was actually covering things with row cover with blankets and I was taking like my, my electric seed mats and shoving in between the plants. It, you know, on the raised beds underneath, they're trying to generate heat and have extension cords running everywhere. And stuff. I was trying every trick I could to try to save them. Cause it got down to like, I think it got down, I think like low twenties, you know, a couple times during that. yeah, and It was uh yeah, it was pretty <laughs> it was touch and go there for a little while.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, cause here in Kentucky, that was two weeks after I think our frost date yeah. that that hit. And I mean, and I think where we are, it got down to 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just, it was no bueno. It was not enjoyable. Yeah, that,
2: but. yeah, I seen I seen a lot of pictures on Facebook and such of, of folks who who lost a lot of their crops. A lot of them. <laughs> uh, a good yeah. friend of mine, he had a whole, uh, he has a, a high tunnel, uh, and he had it filled with tomato plants and lost dang near every one of them in in the yeah, tunnel. Did he-
1: did he try doing floating row cover or anything or did he just kind of let it go?
2: He just thought it would hold enough heat and he let it go and it, and it, it got him. It killed almost every plant in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, that's the thing that, you know, tunnels, the, the amazing thing is how they do not actually hold heat.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, they will build up some heat through the sunlight, but they don't really hold it well. Unless, I mean, unless you're taking extra precautions and doing extra things. But yeah, he he had bad luck with that, and he paid for it. But he knows now. Now he learned from his mistake. He's only had it a couple a couple of years, so he you know he's still kind of a learning process of how to really use it good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it got him pretty good.
1: Yeah, I only you know I normally have about. Six hundred or so feet of row cover on hand, but a lot of our row cover was kind of worn out. At the, you know, again, we're getting ready to move, so like, oh, all this old row cover, it's kind of a bit tattered and beaten. It's time for it to be recycled. We're not going to need it anyway. Uh, So I only had two new rows, two two new fifty-foot rolls of row cover on hand um, when that frost came, and I was just
0: like, where's all my row cover?
2: Yeah, I did. I I went and bought some this year just for that, just because I knew I was taking some chances because I was going out. I went and put everything out about three weeks before our last frost date. I took some real chances because I thought I just really want to get a jump on this. You know, it's paying off now because we're getting we're getting you know, quite a quite a bit of food. But uh yeah, I was really taking a chance. and I, I had the row cover ready. I had. I mean, I was just I was ready for it. You know, but still, you were. It's kind of like a hope and a prayer.
1: You know. Yeah, yeah. Floating row cover is now. You know, it's kind of like one of those things you learn. You're just like. You know, having extra floating row cover on hand is probably never a bad idea.
2: <laughs> right, right. It can save you in a light frost. We got a hard freeze though, and I was like, that scared me a little bit. I went, uh, I took every extra precaution on that one. I was just doing everything I could to try to build up a little bit of heat under those beds. And it, it turned out to be enough. It was surprisingly, I was the next morning, I'm out there peeking. You know, I didn't want to uncover anything, you know, cause it's still cold, but I'm kind of peeking, see if anything looks brown or <laughs> droop down to the ground yeah. or whatever. And everything was all right. So it worked out. Yeah. But. Well,
1: and you know, this, this might be useful for listeners, but, um, I think it's like the 19 weight row cover. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is worth five degrees of protection Okay. Um, yeah. for each layer. So, you know, for that freeze, um, you know, stuff in our high tunnel, um, we protected with a single layer because the high tunnel is a bit warmer than outside. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then outside stuff um, needed a double layer to, to really be sure it would be well protected. So. But, yeah, I, I oh, took my oh. most
2: sensitive stuff. I had row cover over it, and I was laying like some blankets even over that, like where my tomatoes were and stuff, trying to really thicken it up. You know, put some insulation on there. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, another thing you can do. Um, so one of the things I did for our most sensitive plants, cause I already had zucchini and stuff that were, you know, probably, um, you know, these are like four week old zucchini in the high tunnel. So they're getting ready to flower. Um, you know, they, they're, they're getting that stage. We're going to be putting forth their mm-hmm. first flowers and really zooming up. Um, we filled, um, 20 gallon black toast with water a few days mm-hmm. before the yeah. freeze and let them warm up. Um, and then we we had the totes, uh, you know, basically among the plants.
0: Yeah.
1: And then in my rows of peppers, I actually drained our hot water heater and some of our food grade, you know, food storage buckets that were empty that we have on hand, I filled with hot water and snapped lids on them. And I put those buckets of hot water Underneath the row cover, you know, every so many pepper plants. So it'd be yeah, like four pepper yeah. plants, five gallon bucket of hot water. Um, yeah. And so we were able, uh, and it, it was amazing because I have some pictures I posted on Facebook where um, there would be identical plants six inches apart from each other in our high tunnel. And the ones under the row cover were perfectly untouched and the plants six inches away that weren't under the row cover were utterly ruined, just completely demolished.
2: I remember you sharing those pictures. I remember seeing that. Yeah. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That it makes that big of a difference.
1: Oh, I I, I was just amazed. Like, you know, it really, um, it it really just is like some of the things we homesteaders and farmers have access to um, really are incredible. Like just what a mercy and a blessing that, You know, for a $15 sheet of row cover, you can extend your growing season by three months and and protect, you know, thousands of dollars of food and plants.
2: Yeah, yeah. It is amazing. If Paul Ingalls would have had access to those things back in the day, he wouldn't have been doing that show every year where his crops were failing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's funny.
2: (laughs) Well, John, I think we've solved most of the homesteading problems in the world. I guess we can uh, probably wrap this up. And uh, <laughs> but I, I appreciate it. you got some great advice for folks with weeds and you know keeping weeds out there. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for homesteaders. I mean, it's something that will eat up a lot of your time if you don't know how to handle it right. It's something that uh, if you can, if you know a few tricks you shared with us today, I mean, uh, uh, it definitely can make all the difference in, in, in having a, a good year or a uh, miserable year of just being out in the garden a lot so i'm sure you have a lot more to say about that in your book uh winning the war on weeds so i'll, I'll uh, put links to that and your other books in the uh, show notes so people can check that out because i'm sure there's some uh, a lot more great advice in there uh for uh for beating those weeds
1: yeah hopefully it'll help people because you know in, in the, the general time of year that you have the most weed problems is also the best time of year to go to the beach <laughs> and so i i want to be at the beach i don't want to be pulling weeds and i want to see you at the beach um <laughs> there you go
0: so,
2: well it can make uh like i said it can make you uh miserable if uh everything's going wrong and you're spending your whole weekend just doing that and you don't have any kids to make do it so like i don't in house so i have to go out there and do it myself so i uh <laughs> yeah I'm, I, I want i want them defeated i don't want to deal with
1: them <laughs> <laughs> i've learned you do. Know. Making kids do weeding work is not a winning strategy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it'll make them grow up to not really want to garden, probably. So I know I did my fair share as a kid, and I, I kind of broke away from gardening for a few years. That might have had something to do with it. I'm not real sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I got all the worst jobs in the garden. I didn't get the fun stuff. I got the worst jobs. <laughs> well,
1: we'll, well, we'll need to talk about that some other time. So because that, that that's a worthwhile episode in itself. How to homestead. <laughs> How to homestead in a way that your kids will love it and want to do it.
2: Yes, yes. So. That's, our, that's our future. It's their future, and we want them to. We want we do a, a fair share of trying to convince people this lifestyle is worth living. It's sad if our kids don't want to do it, right? Exactly. So, yeah, we want to ensure that they have a love for the lifestyle. Well, John, it was really good talking to you tonight. I'll let you uh, tend to your other duties, and I really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast tonight and uh, sharing everything you did with
1: us. Great. Well, you have a wonderful night, brother.
2: I hope you enjoyed this episode. To learn more or find more episodes, just head on over to com. Thanks
0: for listening.